Good morning, everyone. Oh, you guys are sweet. If you are new here, my name is Brian Cobley. I'm the family ministry director here at Arbor. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series that we've been doing in Mark before we take a few weeks off from it. And this morning, we're going to be digging into some pretty tough passages, passages that might have brought some questions in your faith journey. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage where it seems that Jesus might reject his family as they're outside trying to call for him. We're going to be looking at a passage that talks about the one unforgivable sin, the one sin that Jesus cannot forgive. And we're going to be looking at where we stand when it comes to the unforgivable sin, if we in this room have committed this sin. So if you have your Bibles, will you open them up to Mark chapter 3, verse 20? And we're going to be reading all the way through verse 35. But while you get there, I, kind of, I want to prep us for where we're going by looking at where we've already been. See, in this section, we're going to encounter two groups of people who have placed an expectation on Jesus that Jesus is not meeting. They put an expectation, have an assumption of who he is and what he's doing. And, as we, and what we're about to see is these two groups are thoroughly confused, and honestly have a misinterpretation of who Jesus is. So I want to look back and go back to the very first sermon that we heard in this Mark series from Ryan. Ryan told us, if you recall, that what was common in the Gospel of Mark series is that Jesus, the Jesus that Mark represents to us, is a Jesus who was constantly defying expectations. Ryan also reminded us of what the first century people, what they would have thought of the Messiah to be. Ryan said that in the Jewish minds of the time, primary expectation of the Messiah would be that he would save the Jewish nation as a conquering king because he would be the anointed and he would vanquish Israel's foes and usher in the messianic age and rule the Jewish people. So what we're about to read is a response from two groups who try to interfere in the ministry of Jesus because Jesus is not meeting their expectations of what the Messiah is. So we're going to look at their response to Jesus and how Jesus responds to them. So we're going to read God's word and how, how we've been doing in this Mark series. Will you stand up for God's word? There is a lot, though, just to let you know. So it begins. Then he went home, he being Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down for Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Bezalel, and by the prince of the demons he cast out the demons. And he, Jesus, called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For there is saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You guys can have a seat. So a question I want to start us with is this. In your life, have you ever had pushback on a big life decision? Like a really big life decision that was going to kind of change the course of everything. Maybe when you were in college, you felt like you needed to change your major. And that came with complications, especially if you chose like an art major. (laughs) Maybe you decided to drop out of college. Like, maybe you're like, you know what, I don't think this is for me. College is not for everybody. Um, I, my professors hate me. I'm going to drop out of college. I don't feel like I need it anyways. And maybe that came with some pushback, some anger, some turmoil. Or maybe you had just a complete career change. You felt like you have discovered your calling in life. Or maybe you just found out something that you really love to do, and this is what you're going to fully commit to. If you get to know me a little bit more, that's actually a little bit more of my story. But when you make a big life change, when you make this, this decision, it usually comes with some pushback, especially from the people who love us the most, who have placed an expectation on us. To give you guys an example, if I told my wife, my parents, my mother-in-law that I want to quit being the family ministry director here at Arbor and pursue a life of golf, how do you think they'd respond? Now, some of you have golfed with me, so you know that's probably not likely. But here's the, here's the reality. Being 31 years old, I've realized that I've, I've missed out on the PGA. I can't do it. But if I start working now, I can make the seniors league, the seniors club. If I, spend, start, if I quit now, I can become the seniors champion, but I just need to quit my job now. If I told that to my family, they would yell at me. They would get very angry. They would talk, try to talk some sense into me or ask or get in touch with people that I trust to be able to talk some sense into me. If I told that to my mother-in-law, Audra would um, be able to claim life insurance the next day. <laughs> but usually it, it, the people who care about us, they're the ones that get angry. Because if I told that to somebody who doesn't have that same kind of rela- relational equity with me, I would say, hey, man, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to pursue golf. The person would probably look at me and go, good, good job, man. Good luck. Like, follow your dreams. What are, why are there two different responses to that? It's because this. When you are part of a family, there are expectations. When you're part of a family, or if there's people close enough to you that they're pretty much family, they have put some expectations on you. Expectations that you will not mess up the status quo. Expectations that you will live up to your responsibilities. Expectations that you will not go mess up so badly that people need to question your sanity. Now, a question for you guys. In your own households, with your own family, what expectations do you have for the people in your house? Clean your room. Clear off the plate and uh, dinner. Put the toilet seat down, leave the toilet seat up. I don't know. Um, don't make plans on Sunday because Sunday is for God and football. That one's for me. Audra, hope you're listening. Uh, what, what expectations do you have? Now, 
I will say this. I have said that like senior league joke to a lot of people in this church before, and you're probably wondering, okay, at this point, is he being serious? No, I am not going to quit my job at Arbor to pursue golf. I can do both at the same time. <laughs> but when you're, when you're part of a family, there are expectations, expectations put on us to not, to not rock the boat. In his book, Sacred Fire, Ronald, he teaches a story of a couple in their 70s that felt like God was calling them to do something incredible in their life. And here's what they said speaking to their priest. They said, Father, we have been longstanding and faithful here, and you know us well. We're retired, we're comfortable, we're still enjoying good health, we're really enjoying our grandchildren, but there's still so many options still open to us, so many things we would like to do in our lives. So we've been praying together and praying a lot over the story of Abraham and Sarah and how when they were old, God called them to set out for an unknown place and how it took them 10 years to get there. And when they arrived, well over 80 years old, Sarah got pregnant in some new way and how that became their real gift to the world. So they were, they were praying about it. And they felt like God has a calling for them in their 70s. And here's what they said. We feel that God is calling us into the big unknown, big unknown like he did for them. We have mulled over this for a long time, and this is our plan. We want to sell our house, buy one-way tickets to Pakistan, and give the rest of our money to the food bank and become missionaries in Pakistan. Their plan was to go there with no money and to live simply with the poor there and to die there. Now, how do you think their family responded? <laughs> Not well. I don't know if they wanted that money or inheritance, but they, it says that they were beyond belief and thought that they were insane. Now, how do you think the priest responded? And this is a church leader. He didn't respond very well either. He tried everything they could do to convince them not to. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This story, uh, Ronald did make this story up. It's not a real story. I mean, it could be. It could be somebody's story. But I want to ask you, if that was your parents, how would you respond? Like, Don, if Maureen is like, I'm leaving, I'm going to Pakistan, I'm going to be a missionary. Sorry, we're, our relationship is pretty much done unless you want to come to Pakistan with me. Would you think there was something wrong, or would you fully support, Don? No. <laughs> no, I mean, some of you might be like, you know what, good, good for my parents, but if my parents did it, I would do everything I could to convince them not to. I don't think my parents are equipped for that kind of work. But the reality is when our family, when they rock the boat, we get a little scared because they're not meeting their expectations. And in Mark 3.20, we're experiencing this. We're seeing, seeing this. We're reading this, that there's two groups of people who have an expectation on who Jesus is, what he's supposed to be doing. He's not living up to it, and they now have a response. So the first people we read is from his own family. It says, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. See, after, after observing what's been going on in Jesus' life, his family, their conclusion is, there, there's something wrong with Jesus. There's something not right. He is out of his mind. Now, when I read this, this is, this is Brian's interpretation I think that Mary, the brothers, the family is seeing John the Baptist. And if you don't know, John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus. They see John the Baptist and they're like, wow, that guy's wild. I mean, he lives in the wilderness. He's eating bugs. He's wearing rags. Mary's probably looking at this going, man, I got the good one. 
Jesus is going to be an upright citizen. He has a trade. He's going to, it's going to be great. And now, as you look at the ministry of Jesus, if you guys recall where we're at in Mark, Jesus is kind of forced to be out in the wilderness. The things he's teaching is causing conflict. Um, as of right now, we see that there's, the crowd is gathered so big that he can't even eat. So Mary's like, oh my gosh, is he going to eat bugs? He can't eat bugs. We have to, we have to stop this guy. And so they see Jesus' life and like, okay, this, this isn't right. We need to stop him. He is not right of mine. We need to stop this. And maybe you're like me. Because when I read this, the first thing I thought of was, okay, the brothers not really believe in Jesus. That makes sense. There's that long joke that, you know, if your sibling, your brother, your sister said that they're the Messiah, would you believe them? So like, Jesus' brother is not believing. That's, that makes sense. But Mary, Mary thinking that Jesus is out of his mind, that's thought-provoking. Because this is the same woman who had a teenager. As a teenager, her life was completely interrupted by God. When an angel came to her and said, as a virgin, through the Holy Spirit, you will conceive a child who will be the son of God. And Mary's response, which is an incredible response, I wish every one of us in this room have a chance to say this to God when he puts a calling on us. She says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Such an amazing response. But Mary right now is seeing Jesus's life, claiming to be the Messiah, and is saying that he is out of his mind. What is going on here? See, what this tells me, the this common thread in Mark, is that the person Mary, mother of Jesus, also doesn't fully understand what Jesus came to do. You know, maybe she thought, like, son of God, that Jesus was going to be like the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, or the priests, but be like the best version of them to kind of show, like, this is the target. This is the mark that all these other people are supposed to be at. In her mind, maybe she didn't realize that this guy was going to be starting a revolution or changing everything, being counterculture. So maybe this is kind of scaring her a little bit. But what we see clearly from his own family is they're so concerned with him that it says that they want to seize him. They want to take charge of him. This Greek word used throughout Mark, the times that we see it is when Herod arrests John the Baptist, when the chief priests try to arrest Jesus and to the eventual arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So like his family, they're not only trying to like, you know, usher him back to home, they're actually trying to seize him, take charge of him, get him out of there because they don't fully understand who he is, what he's doing, the expectation that they have put on him and have just come to the conclusion that Jesus is out of his mind. So that's the first group. First group who just does not fully understand who Jesus is. The second group now that we see is the scribes who are trying to stop Jesus because the expectations they have for him just as a Jewish citizen, as somebody who claims to be a leader. Their attempt to end Jesus's ministry is to say that Jesus is demon-possessed. He is possessed. It says the scribes who came down for Jerusalem were saying, he is, he is possessed by visible, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. See, they've come down from Jerusalem, and their attempt, their, their verdict is that Jesus is being possessed by Satan to be able to do the works that he's doing. 
Now, to me, when I read this, here's, a, here's something that's a little thought-provoking. They see Jesus, and they don't deny his miracles. They don't deny that he has the ability to heal people who are demon-possessed, to have the, the power of exorcism. They don't say it's false. They don't say it's fake. They don't say it's an illusion. It's a trick. They now actually have fully agreed, like, he has the power to do this. Except for this power doesn't come from God. It's actually of Satan. Now, here's the thing that really makes me think. You know, in today's world, we hear this a lot. That people say, you know, if Jesus would come down now, if Jesus would just perform the same miracles that he did, then the world would believe. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are proof that that's actually not the case. That if we did see the same works, there would be so many people who would say the same thing. That this is from Satan. This isn't, this isn't good. This is an agency of evil. That's a little detour, but when I was reading this, like that's what they're doing. They're clearly seeing Jesus' work and are claiming that it is from Satan, that it is the opposite. Now, see, for me, if I was Jesus, I would be incredibly frustrated with what's going on right now. I mean, the very work that Jesus came to do is to reverse the damage of Satan, to offer salvation for God's people, to give them a way to be freed from the slavery of sin and have freedom in, in Christ, freedom with God, the ability to have eternal life. And they're claiming it to be the exact opposite of what he's doing, accused of the exact opposite. I mean, there is no greater love than what Jesus is about to do, what Jesus has done for us. That's what scripture tells us. There's no greater love than someone who lays down his life for his friends. And the scribes, the teachers of the law, are claiming that this is from Satan. That's the accusation. So those are the two kind of attempts to end what Jesus is doing based upon him not meeting their expectations. From his own family and from the church leaders. But right now, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to reverse it on them to show that they're the ones, in fact, not meeting the expectations. They're the ones not living up to the expectations of the will of God, the expectations to be in God's family. So he's first going to address the scribes, and then we'll see how he responds to his own family. But for the scribes, here's what he says. He says, he's called, called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Honestly, it seems a little too logical, doesn't it? Like, I feel like Jesus didn't have to explain himself in this. I mean, it absolutely makes no sense. So Jesus, he explains to them how their accusation has no grounds at a level of common sense saying to them your claim is simply absurd because why would satan initiate an assault against himself why would satan do this is this really is this really how things work if satan wants to continue his enslaving rule over humanity and at the same time begin an operation of freeing humanity from his enslaving power wouldn't that result in the toppling of his reign this doesn't make any sense. If Satan's really doing this, then he is 
finished. So Satan, or not Satan, whoa, gosh, I just did what the scribes did. Jesus wants them to critically scrutinize their reaction, to really like assess their, their mindset of how do they arrive to this conclusion. And again, I really don't feel like this, like Jesus had to explain himself, but he did. Because I think these scribes have a lot of power, a lot of authority, that the people around him, Jesus just doesn't want any of the contamination to come their way. So he's going to explain it to them, and he's going he's gonna to let them see how their mindset is absolutely wrong. And now Jesus, and I, again, not, not wrong, not absolutely wrong, but also almost unforgivable, which we'll get there. But like what they're saying is very close to being unforgivable. The one thing that Jesus just cannot forgive. And so Jesus explains it. He explains to them their mindset, their mind of thinking, and how dangerous it is. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be, will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Guilty of the internal sin. So Jesus is saying all sins are forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies you utter, if you ask for forgiveness, you will be forgiven. If you choose to ask, you'll be forgiven. But the one thing Jesus will and cannot forgive, will not and cannot forgive, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So at this time, I think it's actually important for us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we know the Holy Spirit is the one leading us, is the one guiding us in this world. When Jesus left, he told his disciples that it was better for him to go because then we will get the gift, the promise, the paraclete, the counselor, to be our promise, to be the validation of the eternity to come, to be the promise of salvation for our lives. The Spirit is our proof of our adoption and on top of it, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf through prayers and through moanings louder than words. And here's the big one that the Holy Spirit does in John 15, 26. It says, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. It brings before the world the truth of the revelation of God and in in Jesus Christ and his words, his works, his death, his resurrection with all of its potential for both blessing and judgment. This witness will force a division in the world and a division that Jesus is referring to right now, being forgiven and not. And right now, the scribes right now are, are, are touching the unforgivable sin, which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Craig Keener in his commentary, um, it's a background commentary in the New Testament. This is how he defines what's going on right now in their context. He says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit here means opposing Jesus' messiahship so firmly that one resorts to accusations of sorcery to get around the Spirit's signs confirming his identity. Jesus probably means rejecting even the Spirit's testimony to Jesus' identity and mission expressed through exorcism. Jesus' accusers show themselves dangerously close to being incapable of repentance. So this is a warning. It's a warning for the scribes who's accusing his, his salvific work for satanic. 
And these are, these are the leaders of, of the law. These, these are the ones who have the most influence of God's people, and they are not living up to their expectations of their responsibilities they're doing. They're not living to the expectations. They're actually doing the opposite. They're claiming something that is from God and is good. It's from Satan, and it is evil. That's where they're at right now. Being in God's family, they're not living up to the expectations. Now, I want to address the tension that might be in this room. The question that you might be wanting to ask, want to interrupt. Have I also not met the expectations? Have I also, have I committed the unforgivable sin? To answer that question, I want to transition to now Jesus' response to his own family. And through that, we'll see. Have we committed this sin? So here's what, what, here's what happens next. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. You know, this isn't a verse that you're probably going to see on Mother's Day. And at first glance, this verse can be so confusing. Like, what, is, what does Jesus mean by this? Why does it seem like he reject his family? So I got a story for you from uh, when I was a child. Uh, I did get permission from my mom to share the story, so it tells you it's a little, you know, a little chesty. And uh, for the kids in the room, I'm sorry if I give your parents uh, an idea here. My mom was very creative when it came to consequences and discipline. Very creative. I'll, I'll, she can write a book on some of the, the weird stuff that we had to do because we were in trouble. But here's one. My mom was... My mom and my older brother, when he was in middle school, kind of got into a little tiff, little, little argument. And my brother said to my mom, I wish you weren't my mom. Why can't you be like my friend's mom? They're cool. I don't want you as my mom. So a normal parent would probably yell, probably send that kid to the room and think about what they have done. Not my mom. My mom's just a little too creative for that. My mom said to my brother, fine. I'm no longer your mom. You get what you want. So here's what happened. My mom said to him, you can still live in this house, but you don't eat our food. I'm not going to do your laundry. This is on you. So I remember as a kid, I'm like, man, my brother's a lot of life lessons of what not to do. <laughs> so my mom made dinner one time during this, and I'm telling you guys, this lasted like a week. Um, my brother's very, very hard-headed. So my mom made dinner, and my brother sat down to eat. My mom was like, excuse me, what are you doing? And he goes, mom. He goes, oh, I'm not mom. My name is Chris. You address me by Chris. He's like, mom. goes, she would stop and go, Chris, can I eat? And mom's like, oh, no, this food's for my children. But if you want to eat, sure, I'll give you something. My mom gave him a can of raviolis and a can opener to, to eat dinner. And so my brother kept at this, and then he needed his laundry done. And my mom, he asked my mom, said, mom, she goes, excuse me. He goes, Chris, can you please do my laundry? And my mom was like, no, no, no. I do laundry for, for my kids. So my mom grabbed his laundry, took him to a laundromat, and gave him quarters so he could do his own laundry. And I asked my mom, I'm like, yeah, but you, like, you stayed in the parking lot, right? She goes, no. <laughs> I went home. I was like, oh, my gosh. 
This went on until my brother finally said, I, I'm sorry. I want you as a mom again. And my mom let it last like a few more days after that, just so she can get that point in. But that was my brother rejecting my mom. Absolutely rejecting my mom. And here, it kind of feels like Jesus is rejecting his own family. But see, I, I, I don't really want us to look at it this way. But I will say this, like, it says, like, in this, in this text that his family is, like, searching for, for Jesus. And again, I told you, they're trying to seize him. So this word searching is actually the same word that we encountered after Jesus healed the whole town and wanted to get some retreat and some silence with his father. And it said that Simon Peter and the crowd were searching for him. The word really means hunting for him, like trying their best to just grab him. So his family, they're, like, hunting for Jesus to seize him. And then Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Again, you might think this is rejection, but I actually don't want to look at this as rejection. I want to look at this as inclusion. And the worship team, you guys can make your way up here right now. I want us to look at this as inclusion, because right now you're probably wondering, have I committed the internal sin? The truth is, if that's on your heart, if you were asking that question, then you most likely have not committed the unforgivable sin. That conviction that you have, that, that desire to not want to make the sin is your proof that you have not committed the internal, the, the unforgivable sin. The conviction is proof that you have the spirit in you as a witness and the validation that you are a child of God. To commit the sin... It is witnessing the effects of this divine invasion against the slavery of sin and say that Satan is the one at work. See, it's not only to deny Jesus as the Messiah, but it's also to label him as an instrument to the devil. That's the eternal sin. If you haven't done that, then you haven't committed the sin. If you're in this room and you are trusting in Jesus, or just even on the edge of trusting in Jesus, you are absolutely fine. See, you can read this verse, and it could cause fear. It could make you have this sense of, am I, am I out? Am I being excluded? Am I being rejected? Like, Jesus seems like he's rejecting his family. But the truth is, it's not rejection. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to actually be part of his real family. See, in this moment, it is a lesson for the scribes to hear. It's a lesson for his family to hear. And it's a lesson for those around him to hear. That who are my mother and my brothers? <laughs> Thanks. Who are my mother and my brother? It's those who are doing the will of God. If that's you, you are part of Jesus' family. However, when you're part of a family, there's expectations. When you are in Jesus' family, there are expectations. And he lets us know. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And if you're like, okay, I want to do the will of God. What is the will of God? Like, I, I want to do it. Well, listen to Jesus' words in John 15. He says, as a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And 1 John, John, his first letter, he tells us, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. If you do this, if you do his will, you are part of Jesus' family. You're not excluded. This isn't a passage of rejection. This is a passage of invitation, an invitation to join in on what the Messiah is doing. An invitation to have a family. The people hearing this, they must have felt so good. Because following Jesus was probably a hit on their reputation and maybe an ostracized from their own family to be in this room. And in Jesus saying, you're in. And maybe you have felt that in your life before too, where you made a decision, a big life decision for the name of God. And people are like, we're done. I'm done. Again, if you want to get to know me, that's my story. But to hear that Jesus say, no, if you do the will, you're part of my family. That must have felt amazing. And if that's you in this room, you're in. You have a family with Christ and with those in this room. This is, an, this is a message of inclusion, of an invitation. If, if you do his will, you're part of it. Let's pray.